and give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing from Psalm 69 in the Scottish Psalter and singing verses 1 to 4. Save me, O God, because the floods do so invite in me that even unto my very soul come in the waters be. We'll stand and sing verses 1 to 4. <clears throat> Save me, O God, because the thanks that we can meet here together tonight. We thank you that we can meet in the presence of one another, but we thank you even more that we can meet in the presence of God. And it's good for us to be in your presence, 
because you are the God who is kind and gracious, and you're always ready to say something to us, and what you have to say to us is found in your word, and your word tells us about many things that we would never find out anywhere else. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us uh, tonight as we gather here. We thank you too that we can speak to you. And in a certain sense, we've been doing that already as we sang these verses from Psalm 69. A psalm that enables us to see something of the sufferings of the Savior. Although it was written long before he came into the world. And yet it was a window for us uh, to look back and see what he experienced. And something even more wonderful than that is that it was a window for him uh, to see what he would experience when he uh, came towards the end of his earthly journey and needed light on his path. And he found that light in the same place uh, where we find it, in your word. As he said himself, another part of the Bible, your law was in his heart. And that's a description of your word. And it was there, and he got help from it. And as he experienced the various things that happened to him, it was your word that was at the center of everything. We thank you, Lord, that your words are a living word. It's alive. It was alive when David wrote it. It was alive when your word was put together. It's alive still. And we thank you that it can enlighten us. It can also probe us. It can point out things to us about ourselves that no one else can and it can reveal things to us that we need to know and it can change us and we are here tonight and one reason for being here is so that we will be changed Uh, each of us uh, no matter how often we have been in church and how often we read your word we never get beyond the stage of it renewing us and changing us and we thank you that we know what your purpose is regarding change uh, that we are to be changed into the likeness of Jesus and that's a wonderful prospect we know that one day As far as your people are concerned, that transformation will be complete and perfect. But in the meantime, there has to be ongoing conformity uh, to his likeness, to his thought processes, to his affections, uh, to his choices, to his dedication, uh, to everything. Uh, in which he is our example, and we thank you, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit that change takes place, uh, 
whether we sense it or not, uh, we are being renewed inwardly, as your word tells us, and by faith we have to accept that that is going on, and even when we're finding life hard and complex, and when issues are arising that uh, distract us, we may wonder if anything is happening within us, but the reality is, if we use your word, then we will be changed. There's no real doubt about that. So we give you thanks, Lord, for your word and for the fact that we can uh, sit here tonight and think about it. We thank you, Lord, that throughout this service we can be responding to you. And even as we think about Jesus and what he went through, it's good for us to be responding uh, as we go along. And whatever it is that we might think about, we can say to ourselves, and we can also say to you that he did that for us. And it's good for us to have fresh and spontaneous reactions uh, to what your word says. You're looking at us. You're not expecting our hearts to be uh, ambivalent or indifferent. You expect a response uh, from us as we go through our service. You are doing things in our lives and that has to show itself even in our time of worship. So Lord, work in our hearts and may we have a fresh reaction to you even if it's about details that we know a great deal about already. We thank you for your word. It's going to be our guide this year. It's been our guide in previous years and as we face the unknown future we've no idea what this year is going to bring. We may have our assumptions and so on. But what we need is your guidance and we need that personally, we need it as families, we need it as a congregation, and we need it as a denomination, and we need that as part of your people in our country, and indeed throughout the world. And we thank you that your word will lead us and day by day. There's not going to be a day in 2023 and we will not need your word. And therefore, we thank you for its ongoing relevance and for giving to us the assurance that whatever comes our way, your word will be there to help us in those circumstances. We thank you, and that is the sword of the Spirit by which we win spiritual battles. It's the weapon that you have given to us uh, to use, and we pray that we would be using it 
against the enemy of our souls and the devil and his temptations and his distractions. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us as we start the year and that you'd make it one of great spiritual blessing. But as we look around in our society, we see many issues arising, many problems, difficulties, uh, some of them looking insurmountable. We pray, Lord, that in these times of crisis, and we are in a time of crisis, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would come yourself and speak to our people, to our governments, to all people with influence, whatever level they are at. Uh, we ask you, Lord, that you would come and speak to them. You're able to do it. You can speak through their consciences. Uh, you can speak through advice from others. And you can speak by drawing them, even to look at what your word says. But we pray, Lord, that you would do that. Because we know that if you would do it, it would be uh, good for us as a society. But above all, we pray you would speak to us as a nation through the gospel. And uh, in this coming year, there would be great times of spiritual vitality and that there would be many converts and uh, whatever else may be said about 2023. We pray, Lord, that it would be the time when future generations look back and say it was when the Lord did amazing things. We just pray, Lord, that you would come and do that, your own gracious power, and what a wonderful year that would be if that were to happen. We pray, Lord, for those of us who have burdens to carry, and some of our burdens are well known, others perhaps not so, but we thank you, Lord, that your word says that we can cast our burdens upon you. Uh, remember those with health concerns, that uh, you would bless them and the treatment they are undergoing. Remember those who are apprehensive of the future, that they would look to you for the grace that you can give. Pray too for those who have concerns and family life, and so on. And we just pray, Lord, that you would remember every aspect of these situations. We pray you would bless the children who are here with us tonight, and we pray you would enable them to understand your word according to their own abilities. And we pray for all of us that we would hear what God the Lord has to say. Remember your suffering church throughout the world. We pray you would be with them tonight. You know where they are. We thank you for your own word which tells us the Lord knows them that are his. And we pray that you would speak peace to them tonight, wherever they are. So Lord, be with us in our service. We pray you would answer the prayers of our hearts. We thank you that your word tells us that you're able to answer them far above 
what we can ask or think. So we pray, Lord, that you would do so, not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus, and the one that you have exalted to the highest place and given him the highest name. And we pray that his name would be extolled and esteemed uh, throughout the world today. So bless us, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing again from the same psalm, Psalm 69. We'll sing verses 5 to 12 from the Scottish Psalter. Lord, thou my folly knowest, my sins not covered are from thee. Let none that wait on thee be shamed, Lord God of hosts, for me. Verses 5 to 12. Lord, thou my folly knows my sin, not covered are from thee.
Gospel of Luke and chapter 22, and we can read verses 47 to 65. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looked closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And may God bless that reading to us. We can sing again from Psalm 69 in the Scottish Psalter. And we can sing verses 13 uh, to 20. But in an acceptable time, my prayer, Lord, is to thee. In truth of thy salvation, Lord, and mercy great, hear me. Verses 13 to 20, and we'll stand to sing.
Well, we can turn back to the passage we read there from Luke chapter 22. I'd just like us to think together about the various events or incidents that are described there. I have given it the title, uh, Descending the Ladder. And Jesus here is climbing down. We could say it's part of his humiliation. It's getting deeper and deeper. And although we've read as far as what's described there in verse 65 when he's before the the Jewish Sanhedrin at least some of them he's got a lot further to go as far as his humiliation is concerned of course uh, the word humiliation for us has got a lot of negative overtones But we are not to think of Jesus' humiliation in that light. Each step in the ladder, there's no one shoving him down. Every step he takes down the way, he chooses it himself. And all the incidents we read about from this passage... He's in charge of each of them. Even though it doesn't look like that. But he's the one that's in control. Throughout his earthly journey, it was one of self-imposed humbling. Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 2, doesn't he? Although he existed in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself. So whenever we read about him during his journey from Bethlehem to Calvary, We are to remember he's made himself of no reputation. And we are therefore not to expect that he's going to get any plaudits or that he's going to get anything that would somehow or other indicate he has not humbled himself. It's down the way as Paul tells us there in that passage in Philippians as well, that not only did he humble himself to become a man, but having become a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. And of course the word to there is describing a process, a journey. He became obedient to it, all the way along it. The path that led to the cross, he was humble, 
all the way. He was not the victim of circumstances at any time. So I just want to see uh, all the steps that are mentioned in this particular passage. And I think there's um, five of them. And in each of them, we're to look for his self-humbling. First one is the false disciple in verses 47 and 49. And then there's the futile defense in verses 49 and 50. The foul darkness in verses 52 to 53. The fear of discovery in verses 54 to 62. And the foul derision in verses 63 to 65. So I just want to spend a few minutes at each of them and see what uh, they tell us. The false disciple. We know who that is, Judas. What was Jesus' last words to Judas? In the upper room, after he'd identified him as the traitor. He said to him, what you do, do quickly. Who's in charge? What you do, do quickly. So if Jesus is saying to him, I know where you're going. You're going to have to get a band of men to arrest me. Whatever you do, don't waste any time. Do it quickly. That gives us amazing insight into Jesus' outlook, doesn't it? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been there a very dark time for him as he prays for strength to continue down the ladder. He gets the strength. It was a humbling experience for a a creature to come from heaven to strengthen him. But there he came. And he's now ready to face the next journey. No doubt it was a shock to the disciples to see Judas. I mean, they thought you had gone off to get something for them to eat. We're told that, aren't we? They thought that Jesus was referring to him getting supplies. But here he comes, and from a certain point of view, as the disciples are looking on, it looks as if Judas is coming in a friendly manner, because he's heading towards Jesus to give him a kiss. Kiss. Why would he give him a kiss? Well, one suggestion that's made, of course, is that people didn't know what Jesus looked like. And therefore, there had to be a method of identification. And if that, is, if that suggestion is true, 
And that gives us insight into his humbleness, doesn't it? He was so unknown that someone had to identify him to these temple guards. Sometimes we have the impression because of certain um, incidents that Jesus was widely regarded as a hero. But was he? Sure, when he was coming in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the crowds that happened to be there were cheering him on. And it's not surprising because they had been with him as he'd been making his way up to Jerusalem. And they had seen him do all kinds of miracles as he gave blind Bartimaeus his sight and so on. And, and just made Zacchaeus a convert. These things were making an impression, but he only made an impression on some people. Lots of people <clears throat> didn't know who he was. And Judas here has to identify him. Imagine going out to arrest somebody you don't know what he looks like. Well, that's what this band of soldiers were doing and Judas gave them this sign but why this sign why not just go up and say grab him by the arm and say this is the man to arrest why would he want to kiss him well it's only a suggestion but I think it's a kiss of contempt. What's is it not indicating that Judas thinks Jesus is totally powerless? That's why he's given him up as a leader, isn't it? He thinks Jesus is a failure. That he's no longer worth following. And in order to bid farewell to him, he's going to give him a kiss. A kiss of goodbye. But in Judas's case, there's a far longer goodbye than he actually assumed. false disciple he once was very close sat beside him at the Passover meal place of honor didn't take him long to show where he he truly felt and think of Jesus I mean, Jesus wants people to kiss him. He wants it to be the kiss of affection, not the kiss of derision. 
But he's been humbled, isn't he? Imagine having to go through this. One thought, and he could have just obliterated Judas. But he didn't. He endured the kiss of the traitor. It's all part of the ladder he's going down. False disciple. Terrible thing to be a false disciple. Then secondly, there's the futile defense. Earlier, Jesus and his disciples had been speaking about swords. Well, the disciples imagined, because since they were still thinking at an earthly level, and they were anticipating in a short time that somehow or other the kingdom would be theirs, that the thing that they would need in order to climb to the top would be some kind of earthly um, store of weapons. And after their discussion of um, swords, they discover they've only got two. And we would normally expect when the when that's the size of your armory, we will say, well, we better go and get some more. But Jesus, in a very strange, strange way, had said to them, it's enough. And what did he mean when he said that? Because in any earthly set of values, two swords was not enough. But of course, as far as Jesus was concerned, the battle that he was in didn't matter how many swords you had. They were irrelevant, really. But anyway, we know from other Gospels that the, the disciple that engaged in this futile defense was Peter. And there he is with one of the swords and he just waves it about. And in the process, he, he manages to cut off the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest, the man called Malchus. And what would we do in that situation? I mean, Peter's got his own thoughts. Maybe he said to himself, well, that's one of them out of the way. Whatever Peter's thoughts were, they weren't Jesus' thoughts. And in a very concise way, Luke says there in verse 31, Jesus says, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. What an extraordinary display of creatorial power. I mean, the man's ear has been cut off. I mean, it's not a little bruise that he's got. 
But there Jesus shows his unique ability. I mean, he's the one that forms the ear, isn't he? And he touches Malchus and heals him instantaneously. What would you expect people to do when they saw that? Well, surely the one effect would be, wow, this is incredible. We've never seen anything like this before. Malchus' ear has fallen off, and there it is now, back in place. What's the effect going to be on the crowd who've come to arrest him? Are they going to think to themselves, well, this display of powers, <laughs> if he can do that for Malchus, what can he do to us? Or what can he do for us? But one of the sad things about the situation is none of them ask him to do anything for them. There he is. The one who could do anything for all of them. They don't ask him. How humiliating. His power? So what? They've seen it. And that's it. Malchus walking around. Not even he asked Jesus for anything. Despised. Had no effect at all on any of them. An amazing miracle of kindness. But they've come to arrest him. And that's what they're going to do. And the futile defense of his disciples, their Peter's confidence and his own commitment, it's not going to do any good. But there's even a sense, isn't there, that Jesus' own kind action had no effect whatsoever. Why? Because he's humbling himself. That leads us to the next stage where Jesus diagnoses the situation there in verses 52 to 53. He just challenges the priest, chief priests and the officers and the elders and all the rest of them who are there why have you come now? You had plenty of other times to arrest me. When I was in the temple, you did nothing. Of course, they had their reasons for coming in the darkness. They thought if he came in the darkness that there might not be so many people around who might try and rescue him. But anyway, there they are, and they think 
They're doing God a service, don't they? They think Jesus is the biggest problem in the country. They think he's the man that's leading disciples astray. They're they're aware from their perspective that if he keeps going, they're going to lose their place. And of course their place is quite important because they're in charge of the temple and the worship of God and, and the various things connected to that. And they really think that this Jesus has got to be removed. I mean, they're convinced about it. But who's convincing them? And of course, Jesus points out to them who's convincing him. They say it's, he tells them it's the power of darkness. He reminds them, informs them that there's a spiritual conflict going on. And they are just the tools of a far more malignant power than they can possibly imagine. They've treated him as a common criminal and they're going to try and get him put to death as a revolutionary. And Jesus there tells them the truth. Tells them the truth about their motives and what they're doing. Quite stark quite blunt this is the power of darkness that you're engaged in and not one of them took five seconds to wonder if he was telling the truth they just persisted in it and here's Jesus on this step of the ladder highlighting the reality of the situation and nobody listens to him they just persist even though it's not just the atmosphere that's dark it's their hearts they're going to arrest the most beautiful man that ever lived and they despise what he's saying telling the truth but they don't believe Jesus can tell the truth. So they ignore him and they arrest him. And that leads us to the next last stage on the ladder, the fear of discovery. And of course, the person who's afraid to be discovered is brave Peter. Peter, who in verse... Uh, 50 is quite happy to use a sword. So Peter is not a coward. Peter was quite prepared to um, try and do something to uh, restrain the, the people who had come to arrest Jesus. But, and he's got a, an interest in what's going to happen to Jesus, and he's been very careful as he makes his way along the road after Jesus, as the crowd take him to the high priest's house. And, of course, Luke turns that into a kind of word picture and just says Peter was following at a distance, which, of course, tells us everything about his way of following. And we know that Peter has been warned. Jesus has said to him, before daylight... 
basically, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Doesn't look as if Peter's paid any attention to that. And Luke tells us that, yes, he denied Jesus three times. And it's quite a... It looks as if denial number one meant nothing to him. Denial number two meant nothing to him. He didn't say after denial number two, well, I better watch out. He launched into denial number three without a thought. And uh, Luke presents it in quite a graphic manner, this threefold denial. You get the servant girl there in verse 56, and she just spends a short time staring at Jesus, looking closely at him. Sorry, Peter, sorry, staring at Peter, looking closely at him. And somewhere in the past, she has seen Peter and Jesus together. I suppose there's a lesson there, isn't it? You never know who sees us with Jesus, we might say. But anyway, she, she had seen them, and she says once to Peter, or at least to those around him, this man also was with them. And Peter denies it once. Woman, I do not know him. Brief. But then in verse 58, there's this man, a named man comes along. And he doesn't just say to Peter, once you're one of them. Because there in verse 58, and said, that's in the imperfect tense. And this man is saying repeatedly to Peter, you also are one of them. And Peter's response, and Peter said, that's also in the imperfect tense. So it means that Peter was repeating his second denial. He kept saying it again and again. As often as the man said to him, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. He replied once to the girl. He replied many times to the second man. And then we come up to the third one, there in verse 50. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, and that word saying there is in the imperfect tense. This third one, he too was saying this repeatedly. It wasn't just once. This man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. And no doubt, Peter would have wanted to have denied, perhaps as often as he was accused. But the minute he opened his mouth for his first attempt at this third denial, the cock crowed. And Peter's memory was awakened in a moment 
just the warning of Jesus just burned in him. And at that moment, Jesus, who just happens to be standing within the court, within the house, in a spot where he can see Peter out in the courtyard. Who arranged for Jesus to be standing in that particular spot? He did. I mean, who's in charge? There's Jesus. Of all the square feet within the high priest's house where he could be standing. He's standing at the spot where he can see Peter. And he just turns and looks at him. There in verse 61. And Peter who is looking at his accusers, all of a sudden finds himself looking at Jesus. Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. And what can we say about this look of Jesus on Peter? Well, it was a particular look, we can say, Nobody else has ever had this look. Who else has Jesus looked at from this high priest's house and looked at somebody and gave him this particular uh, strong look? Some people talk about this as a glance. Don't think it was a glance. He looked at him. We could say that Jesus knew when to look. And how to look. It's a very particular look. It's also a very probing look. Went straight through Peter. He didn't say to himself, Ah, good, Jesus is looking at me. Did he? Although later on, I'm sure he was very glad that he remembered that Jesus looked at him. The look of Jesus, we might say, was a very painful look. I warned you, Peter. You know, from one point of view, it made no difference to Jesus' fate whether Peter had denied him or not, did it? He was arrested. He was under the the hands of the the authorities. I mean, Peter, from that point of view, his denials were all about self-preservation. They weren't going to affect what's happening to Jesus in an external sense, although Jesus' heart was focused on Peter in a very painful way. You said you would stand up for me, Peter, but you haven't. You've had every moment as you sit there by the fire to stand up for me. And you haven't stood up for me for one second. What a look. It was also a very passionate look. 
you could almost say it was the look of a shepherd looking at one of his sheep sitting amongst wolves. Just looking at him. And yet in a strange way it was also the look of a physician who's putting his patient on the road to recovery. A wonderful look. I've no idea what people will do in heaven. What would you like to ask Peter when you get to heaven? What was it like to preach on the day of Pentecost? Getting 3,000 into the kingdom. Or would you like to ask him about what it was like to get a look from Jesus in the high priest's house? I wonder what one Peter would like to talk about. What effect did this look have on Peter? And remember, Jesus is in his humiliation. He's been mistreated. And he's got time to look for Peter. And surely it brought into Peter's outlook a sense of reality. This look from Jesus said to him, a look that Judas never got. You're mine, Peter. And with that sense of reality, we could say that there was also, he realized the repulsiveness of what he'd done. Is there anything more repulsive that a disciple can do than deny that he knows Jesus? But it was only just a sense of reality and a sense of being of repulsiveness. That's not sufficient. There has to be repentance, heart repentance. Getting a sense of reality is not repentance. And getting a some kind of awareness of the repulsiveness of one's action, that's not repentance. In themselves, they're not. Because strangely, Judas had both of them. But Peter did something that Judas didn't do. He wept bitterly. You know, it was part of the Passover... So you had to take it with bitter herbs. Maybe this is Peter's time for bitter herbs. In a spiritual manner, he's weeping his way back to where he should have been. And of course that is repentance, isn't it? Whether or not there's literal tears. There's no repentance without a broken heart. 
Peter's heart here was broken. He went out and wept bitterly. You can say he left the courtyard in a better state than he came into it. Although it wouldn't have looked like that to anybody at Sodom. They might have thought, oh well, he's upset because his leader has been captured. But that's not why Peter's weeping, is it? He's realized what sin is. What a terrible sin he had committed. And we, we don't say that to point fingers at him. Peter's not our example in his denial. But he is our example in his repentance. It's good to weep. Weep over our sins. <coughs> sins against Jesus. Look of love produced a broken heart. I suppose it's good to ask ourselves have we wept over sin? Not somebody else's sin, our own sin. And then there's a the last step on the ladder here the derision. Imagine asking the one who could see into the heart of Peter. Imagine asking him if he could see through a blindfold. As they blindfolded him and smote him and treated him with contempt. Yet he allowed it to happen. Why did he allow it to happen? I suppose the reason to answer that question is he's got a few more steps to go down. He's nowhere yet near the bottom. As we close, just a couple of lessons. One is we hear about New Testament, the patience and the endurance of Christ. Well, how patient and what endurance there was here, one after the other. He just went through it all. What do we say to him now? As we look up at him, sitting enthroned on high. What do we want to say to him about these awful steps that he went down? We can't say nothing. We have to say something to him. He and his only thank you for going down the ladder. Second lesson is we should never underestimate the power of the Word of God to speak to us about our sins. 
when Jesus heard, sorry, when Peter heard Jesus say to him, you'll deny me three times, he dismissed it. But there, in the high priest's house, that word from the word came back in real power. And we should never underestimate the power of the word of God to come and speak to us. And it might do so in the most strange of places. But Peter can tell us that, can't he? It spoke to me, he would say, when I was sitting by a fire, warming myself, pretending not to be the person I was. And the last thing is one has often been said, and of course it's kind of mentioned it already, but if we have sinned like Peter, we should repent like Peter. And that's logical, isn't it? But it's more than logical. It's also loving. What tells me that I love Jesus? It's the degree of my repentance, isn't it? All the resolutions I want to make today, and there may be quite a lot of them, and they may all sound very good, but I suspect they wouldn't say as much about my love for Jesus as the intensity of my repentance over the sins I commit. Sins in my heart. What's our repentance like? You know, repentance is an ongoing Christian activity. And whatever else we should be doing in 2023, the one thing that we should be doing is repenting. Because none of us ever manages not to sin. So, Peter, we thank him for his example of the man who went and wept bitterly. Shall we pray? Lord, in a certain sense, we have followed you down the ladder and we can see aspects of your humiliation of how you're mistreated by rulers and by soldiers and even by your disciples we know there's lower steps ahead ones in which we can't go when your own father was to abandon you But we do thank you that you went down the ladder and you went down it so that we could go up it. And yet the way to go up it is the way that Peter went up it. 
by repenting of his sin. Lord, help us to be penitent. So be with us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 119 and sing Psalms, verses 17 to 24. Do good to me and I will live. Your servant will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see great wonders in your law, O Lord. We'll sing that section. We'll stand to sing. Do good to me and I will Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.